Um, being a parent, in, in the case of today, being a father is a tough job, is it not? It's a tough job. It's a complex job. There's, there's lots to it. But when you boil down the job of a parent or grandparent, particularly the job of a father or a grandfather, it really involves just two things. So I'm going to make it really simple for you this morning in case you're a father or grandfather out there and just need a reminder. It's a complex job, but it, it can boil down to two things. Love your kids no matter what. And teach your kids no matter what. Love your kids no matter what. Teach your kids no matter what. That's the two things that, that I want to continually get better at as a father. Loving my kids, come what may, no matter what. And teaching my kids, come what may, no matter what. In order for my kids to grow and to develop properly, in order for my kids to mature into upstanding citizens, they need me to love them and to teach them no matter what. They need me to lovingly care for them and teach them and hold them accountable in all things. And a while back, it, it actually dawned on me, that's not just what my kids need, that's what we all need, right? I mean, in order for all of us to grow and to develop uh, as people and specifically as followers of Jesus, we need at least one other person in the world on this planet who will love us no matter what and who will hold us accountable and teach us no matter what. That's all we need. That's when the growth really happens. Both of those are vital for growth and maturity as human beings and specifically as followers of Jesus. In fact, that's really the one another's of Scripture, the love one another, care for one another. That's what, really what they're all about. They're, uh, they're about loving each other and caring for each other and holding each other accountable, spurring one another on, speaking the truth in love to one another. But there's a problem. There always is a problem. I'm an imperfect father. We are imperfect people. We don't love perfectly. We don't hold one another accountable perfectly. Our love is often fickle, selfish, conditional. We don't always hold one another accountable. We're not always perfect in how we hold one another accountable. And, and at best, this problem leaves us stunted in our growth. And at worst, for some of us, it leaves us wounded struggling to cope with life. So here's the key. Here, here's the important part. We need to regularly hear from God. We need to be open to the voice of God in our lives. We need to be tuned in to hear regularly from God and have God as our ultimate source of love and accountability and let God speak words of love and accountability to us, particularly when our earthly fathers or mothers or grandparents or friends are imperfect in doing that. We need to hear from God words of love and accountability. That's nothing new in what I'm saying to you this morning. That's not, that's not, that's not uh, a news flash. That's been the case for Christians for 2,000 years. We need to hear from God. We need to hear words of love and accountability. That, that's always been the case. 
It's true for us here in 2022, and it was true for the church in Corinth back in the first century AD, that the church in Corinth, a group, a congregation of new believers in Jesus in the first century, they were a group, a motley crew, just like you and me. They were like us in many ways. They were seeking to swim upstream in a culture that was a lot like ours, actually. You see, the people of Corinth, they had a bit of a reputation that preceded them. They were infamous, actually, for all the wrong reasons. They were an unruly, hard-drinking bunch of people. It was not A&W for them. The city of Corinth, actually, was known for its vulgar materialism and its sexual promiscuity. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like the culture we live in. And it's into this interesting setting that the Apostle Paul arrives in around 51 AD with the new message of Jesus, this this new gospel message. You can read about it all in Acts 18 if you want to, how many of the people of Corinth became new believers. They proclaimed Jesus instead of Caesar as Lord, and they, they began to follow Jesus and become a Christ follower. And like all new Christians, those people in Corinth were poof instantly perfect, lost all their rough edges, right? Wrong. That's not how it works. You and I know that. No, they brought all of their bad habits and their rough edges with them into this new founded faith. And they began the slow, gradual process of learning and discovering what in the world it means to be a Jesus follower and how that should affect their lives. So in many ways, Paul was their spiritual father, and he spent about a year and a half with them at first, introducing them to Jesus, teaching, training, mentoring them, a year and a half. And then he goes on to other things, and later on, he gets an update. Now, this isn't an email update. Um, I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, Letters were circulated, but he, he, he gets an update from inside the new church in Corinth, and, you know, how are things going? The spiritual father wants to have a sense of how the fledgling congregation is doing, and it's not so pretty, to be honest with you. The young church really sends him a letter, evidently, and <laughs> the basic message of the letter is, um, help, we need some help, there's things going on here, there's, <clears throat> there's issues happening, we don't really know how to deal with it, and they were realizing that following Jesus was a hard thing, swimming upstream is not easy. And there were issues. And so Paul sits down and pens them two letters. Now, we call them 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians because that's how creative uh, humanity is sometimes. Um, he wouldn't have known them. They were just two letters that went out. Uh, but in our, in our scriptures, they're called 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And, and, and he addresses the issues that are coming up in the fellowship in Corinth for these new believers. And he, he's continuing to teach them. He's continuing uh, to remind them how they are to live out this Christian life. It's, it's a really practical, uh, both letters, First and Second Corinthians, are really, really practical. And it's Paul, their spiritual father, continuing to teach them. And he kicks the whole thing off in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 by speaking to them from the perspective of their two biggest needs, love and accountability loving them no matter what, and teaching them no matter what. This morning, I want to call those two things the hug and the thing. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he brings the hug and the thing. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, as we talk about the hug. And I just realized that I don't have my Bible on me, so I'm going to trust that somebody will put it up on screen, or Derwin will bring it to me. Thank you. Large print. Hmm. <laughs> Must be older. Anywho, <clears throat> thank you, appreciate that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So first, the hug. This part of 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is, it's a letter, so this is known as the salutation, the, 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 the hello, how are you, you know, and we still do that. Um, if, you, if you have a, a grandparent, um, perhaps, uh, even a parent who still writes you like like old-fashioned letters on paper and, and like pen, consider yourself lucky. Um, back in the day when letters were written, it would be a whole like there'd be a whole paragraph: greetings, salutations, how are you? Um, email still does that, kinda, and texting sort of does that, kinda. It, you, the salutation is usually, hey, uh, and that's pretty much as far as it gets. But it, it's still that. Hello, how are you? And Paul begins this letter like he would begin any letter with, with a salutation, a warm greeting, a hug. He cared for these people. He loved them. He was their spiritual father. And so he begins this entire letter with a hug. It, it was his hug for sure because he loved them, but, but make no mistake about it, this was, this was God's hug as well. He was a hug transmitter. Have you ever been a hug transmitter? It's a very, very important job. Like if you're speaking to someone and someone asks, you know, hey, how's your brother doing? Or how's, how's uh, your friend doing? And you say, oh, they're doing really well. And well, next time you see them, give them a hug for me. I always say, oh, yeah, sure. I never do that. I always forget. <laughs> I'm a terrible hug transmitter. But that's really what Paul's doing here. Hey, it's my hug. I love you guys. But this is a hug from God, too. Paul's intent in these first few verses that I just read for you is simple. He wants to remind the people that they are loved by him and, more importantly, by God. He wants to embrace them and to transmit a hug to them. 
Paul's hug involved many things. We're just going to run quickly through some of them that I just read for you. His hug involved affirming them. Verse 2, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. He's saying to them, hey, hey, church in Corinth, you guys are sanctified in Jesus Christ. The message translation of this says, it puts it this way, you folks are cleaned up by Jesus and set apart for a God-filled life. Remember who he's talking to here. He's talking to the non-root beer drinking, partying people of Corinth. And he calls them sanctified in Christ Jesus. He declares that they're righteous, cleaned up in God's holy possession. If you want a 50-cent phrase, he's, he's affirming their positional sanctification. There you go. It's before noon on a Sunday, and you've already got, wow, that's a huge phrase. Positional sanctification. He's affirming them in their positional sanctification in Jesus. He's reminding them that this is how they are now viewed by God because of Jesus. You are sanctified. You are called to be holy. You are called to live holy lives. He's saying you are are called to live into what has already been declared over you positionally. You are to grow into the righteous clothes that Jesus has given you. Jesus has clothed you with with righteousness, but the clothes are so big, they're ill-fitting, and and you're, you're called to grow into that kind of holy living, to grow into the sanctified clothes and holiness that God has already declared over you. In another letter to another church, the church in Philippi, Paul puts it this way. He says, continue to work out your salvation. That's that sense. You've been declared righteous. You are positionally holy before God. Now grow into the clothes. Continue to work off the rough edges. But he begins this whole process with the hug, affirming them. You guys are sanctified in Jesus. The hug continues in verse 3. He says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this part of the hug, he's, he's got two big words there, grace and peace. Many of you will know that grace is simply unmerited favor, undeserved favor. The hug, uh, part of the hug is, is, is uh, Paul saying to them, you are, you have undeserved and unearned favor before the living God. Grace to you. It's yours. And peace as well. Shalom over you would be the way the Hebrews would put it. And shalom is just more than, you know, uh, hey, peace. It's, it's, it's deep, saturated, deep-seated settledness in the core of all that I am. Grace and peace to you. That's part of the hug. But the hug doesn't stop there. Verse 4, he says, I always thank my God for you. It's an indication of how much he loves them and values them. Because of the grace that God has given to you in Jesus, I thank my God for you. Think about that for a second. Just, Just think about what he's saying there. He's reflecting on the grace that he's just mentioned. He's reflecting on the grace that God has just poured over these Interesting people in the church of Corinth, 
and he's, he's contemplating the grace that's been given to them in Jesus, and he, he breaks out in thanksgiving. It's as if he, in his own stillness, he's just thinking about them, and he's just saying, God, you have poured out your grace on them. Aren't they awesome? Thank you. Thank you for them. I, I take every opportunity, he says, to thank my God for you. I have a sneaking suspicion that he's not only bragging about them to God, he's also bragging to other cities as he moves around, saying, hey, I want to tell you about the brothers and sisters in Corinth. They are a special bunch of people, and I love them, and I thank God for them. That's part of the hug that he shares with them. The hug goes on in verse 5. He says, for in him, for in Christ, you have been enriched in every way. And he says specifically in knowledge and in speech, in words and in wisdom, you have been enriched in every way. That word enriched there is a, is a great word as well. Uh, the original language, it contains uh, this feel of being made full, um, plumped up, kind of, I was thinking about it, kind of like after Christmas dinner. You know that feeling where you sort of, you crawl on your hands and knees from the kitchen table to, uh, to the living room to, to rest after, you know, all the stress and strain of eating? Um, uh, full as a bull. Like, that, that's kind of the feel, right? Um, enriched, made full, plump. And, and obviously, Paul's not talking here physically that they've been made full and plump, but he's saying in Christ, in, in, in your knowledge and in your speech, Jesus has made you full. You have been enriched. You're fully satisfied in every way. When you're within that Jesus hug, you're enriched. The hug goes on, verse 7. You do not lack any spiritual gift, he says. We're not just fully satisfied in Jesus, but we're fully equipped as his child. Equipped for whatever God calls you to do. You can have confidence in that. That's part of the embrace that Paul is giving them, that this embrace of God saying, you know what, you don't lack anything. You don't lack any spiritual gift. If God is calling you, you're not going to lack what is needed to carry that out. Verse 8, the hug continues. He will strengthen you to the end. We're not just satisfied in Jesus. We're not just equipped in Jesus. But we're strengthened in Jesus. We're, we're sustained. We're energized for whatever God calls us to do. And, and he's saying to these people, God will give you the strength to swim upstream until the very end. Be confident of it. This isn't, this isn't some lame hug. Have you ever had a lame hug? Um, my daughters say that that's how guys normally hug. They say, have you ever seen two guys hug? It's kind of like chest bump and that's it. And it's like, um, that's, that's the hug. Um, but have you ever been really hugged? Like, like, I think I just cracked a rib hug. Um, that, fair warning, that's how Derwin hugs. Um, but careful, because of the elderliness, crack a rib, just be careful on him, be gentle with him. But, but he gives good hugs. You give good hugs. And this, this hug that Paul is giving on behalf of God, this is, this is a 
full hug. There is so much there as he greets these people. All of it is part of the hug, the grand embrace of, yes, their spiritual father, but more importantly, their heavenly father. And Paul, don't miss it, Paul begins there. He begins with the hug. He reminds them of their location as he greets them. Hey, folks, you're in the embrace of God. That's where you are, and I love you. So he starts with the hug, but he doesn't stop there. He proceeds to the thing. The thing always happens within the hug. Don't miss that. If you're forgetting everything else, just remember that this morning. The thing always happens within the hug. And so they are in the hug now, and then Paul moves to the thing, as in, okay, guys, here's the thing. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And it's like he has a little aside here. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he's thinking, okay, I did baptize a few of you. Let me just clarify. Remember, this is a letter, right? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except, except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And then in brackets, Okay, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't remember baptizing anyone else. And then he kind of gets back on track. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom or eloquence. Don't look at me, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Okay, guys, here's the thing. Paul says, you're in the hug. But here's the thing. Paul has a number of serious concerns to address in this entire letter in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. Remember the context. They're trying to swim upstream. They're kind of an unruly bunch. Lots going on. And it, apparently someone from Chloe's household spills the beans to Paul, sends a letter and says, oh, man, there's stuff going on. Um, you need to figure this, help us out here. And so Paul finds out what's going on and pens this letter to address a number of issues, and this is the accountability part. The people need to be embraced and loved, but they also need to be taught and held accountable. And so he says, uh, there's, there's many things, but here's the first thing. The first thing that needed to be addressed in the church in Corinth, there were divisions in the church. There were cracks in the unity. Cliques had developed, or cliques, depending on how you pronounce that. Some said, I, I, you know what? I follow Paul. Others are like, well, I like Paul, but, but Apollos, I like it when he preaches. Some say, uh, you know uh, Cephas, he's the best Bible study leader, uh, or Peter, uh, like, and camps were developing. And Paul's saying, okay, here's the thing. 
Here's the thing, folks. There's divisions among you. You're not getting along with each other. You're not unified in heart and mind. You're going in different directions. There are a number of things to address in this church. Make no mistake about it. But this was the first thing. And within the hug, Paul addresses first things first. Now, you need to understand the nature of this division that he's talking about. We're not talking about, uh, you know, a simple disagreement or two, because, you know, what group of human beings, when they get together, doesn't have a, a disagreement or two? Paul is, uh, is not out simply to tell them that they need to play nicer in the sandbox of life together. The thing, the issue, is, is way more serious than that. And in verse 11 and 12, he talks about that. Factions had developed in the church. Lines of party loyalty had been drawn segregated groups loyal to Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus. Some were, were setting up and setting apart people higher than Jesus. Don't miss that. Some were setting up and setting apart people higher than Jesus. And Paul's point was not, okay, here's the thing, folks, just get along. Just give peace a chance. Rather, he was saying, okay, here's the thing. There's idols in your midst. There's idols in your midst. An idol is something or someone that takes the place in our lives that only God rightfully deserves to hold. That's what an idol is. Something or someone that takes the place in our lives that only God rightfully deserves to hold. That's an idol. The people of Corinth were really familiar with idols. If you know anything about history, you know that, that Corinth was uh, one of the sites where there was a lot of idol worship that happened. You can even go there today and you can see the ruins. They were familiar with idols. They, there was idol worship going on all around them, all around their city. It was a part of their historical culture and religious practice. And Paul actually addresses this cultural idol worship directly with them in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. You can, you can read that on your own. But this stuff right here in chapter 1 that he deals with first, this is idol worship that is way more subtle and way more dangerous. Some of the people, evidently, had shoved Jesus to a peripheral place, not removed Jesus from church, but just, you know, Jesus, just can you go sit over in the corner? I'm more of a Paul fan myself. And Paul and Apollos and Cephas, all good people, by the way, had been exalted. And there had been a subtle shift in some form from, I follow Jesus, to I'm a Paul fan myself, or I'm on Team Apollos, or I'm in Peter's corner, no matter what. And Paul, being the good spiritual father that he is, blows the whistle in chapter 1 and says, oh, oh folks, here's the thing, idols. Why? It's the big deal, because it was toxic. Idol worship, particularly subtle idol worship, is polluting and crippling this group of believers. I was reading a couple weeks ago in Psalm 24, and there's a passage in Psalm 24 that some of you may know. Psalm 24 says this, "'Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place?' The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol. 
Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? That's, that's kind of uh, a symbolism of connectedness with God, of closeness and intimacy with God. Who can have that kind of connectedness and intimacy? Well, you've got to have clean hands and a pure heart. And if there is idol worship among you, that connectedness, that intimacy with God is stolen from you. Here's the thing Paul's saying. Idol worship affects our connectedness and our intimacy with God. Idol worship ultimately, as he says in verse 17, ultimately robs the cross of Christ of its power lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, he says in verse 17. If he says, if we're relying on my wisdom, if all of you are gathering around because you're on, you're, on, you're on Team Paul because of eloquence or superior wisdom, then the cross of Christ that we just celebrated robbed of its power, emptied of its power, because there are idols in your midst. We would miss, folks, you're going to miss the full power of Jesus in our lives and in our midst if there is idol worship. This is where their thing hits home for us as potentially our thing. Because when we read the Ten Commandments, we likely say, you know, it says, you know, have no other gods before me, and we go, hey, check, done that, no idols, no idol worship here. Do you see any wooden statues? I mean, we just don't do that kind of thing. We're good on the idol worship, Graham. But this passage challenged us to look closer. Within the embrace of God, always within the embrace of God, take a closer look at the thing. Where has someone or something usurped the place of Jesus? Where has God been subtly moved aside? Where has Jesus been demoted? Or put another way, who or what is a rival to Jesus in my life. In our life here. Let me give you some examples. Has a pastime or a cause or an organization become an idol in your life? Has your job, has job advancement, has, has education become an idol in your life? Here's one, have your children or your grandchildren become idols? Has your spouse, has perfection become an idol to you? Has a particular societal perspective or a political philosophy become an idol for you? Has your image become an idol? Has the need to be right become an idol? Has being outraged become an idol to you? Like the church in Corinth, has a particular person or leader become an idol to you? The question is, who or what has become a rival to Jesus in my life? Where has God been ousted from the number one position? If you were honest this morning with yourself, Who would you say you follow? Or what would you say you follow? I follow Paul. I follow Paulus. If I'm honest, I follow... What's the subtle, idle temptation in your life? Remember, the result is always the same. According to Psalm 24, 
that idol will rob us of our intimacy with God and our connectedness with God. And according to 1 Corinthians 1.17, that kind of idol worship, that kind of pushing Christ off the central place in our life will result in the cross of Jesus being emptied of its power in our lives. So, Graham, thanks for the encouraging Father's Day sermon. That's really awesome. Um, but it's key, right? It, it's key. This morning, within the hug, and, and please, I've said that a few times, within the embrace of God, that's why Paul started where he started. He wanted the people to know, oh, you guys are so special, and, and I embrace you, and God embraces you. And then within that hug, Paul says to them, here's the thing, guys. I love you so much, just like an earthly father, that I want to hold you accountable. So here's the thing. God, listen to this, God always addresses the things in our lives within the hug. Accountability within a loving relationship. It's a good lesson for us earthly fathers. But that's how our heavenly father operates. Accountability, addressing the thing within a loving relationship, within the hug. That's how our Heavenly Father operates. So this morning, I want to remind you on this Father's Day, I want to remind us all of the embrace of our Heavenly Father. And then within that embrace, what is the thing that God is calling you to address? And as the worship team comes up to close our service, uh, I'd love for this to be a uh, just a contemplative time. As, as they just lead us in this closing song, perhaps this is the Sunday where you simply evaluate where your standing is. Am I in the hug or am I outside of the hug? Have I, have I accepted all that God has offered me in Jesus and, and just stepped into, like, just, have you ever tried to hug somebody that doesn't want to be hugged? It just doesn't go well. But when someone wants to be hugged, they just sink into the embrace. Where, where am I in, in relation to the hug? God knows you and loves you and, and longs for you to be within that embrace. And, and, and maybe that's what you need to contemplate this morning. And or maybe you need to contemplate the thing this morning as we close. What is the thing that God has addressed? What, what is that, perhaps that thing that just... God just touched on, uh, on your mind as, as I spoke this morning. What's the, what's the thing? It's always addressed within the hug, within the smile and the embrace of God. He knows you and he loves you more than any earthly father ever could.